Well, I want to invite you guys to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn over to 1 John chapter 5 for the next bit of our time together this morning. If you're visiting, I want to welcome you again, as Bill already has, and tell you how glad we are that you're here and offer you a copy of the Bible as our gift to you. If you don't own one, we've got Bibles that are provided at the middle of each aisle under these chairs. You can just flag somebody down and they'll pass one to you. Take it. We'd love for you to take it. Um, And then we'd love to talk to you about what what you're going to hear this morning. What we're going to do is just walk very carefully and slowly through a small section of what's written in the Bible because as Christians, we believe the Bible is a place that God speaks to us, that when we, when we turn there, we can hear from him, that his word to us is clear and understandable, especially when we come to it together and come to it carefully and look to understand it on its terms. And that's what we're going to try to do together this morning, and we'd love the chance to follow up with you after this if you have any questions about it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 is what we're going to look at this morning. Um, one of the things we've been saying about First John, about this letter, as we've worked our way through it since the beginning of this year, is that John's trying to help us understand what a true Christian actually is, where you can see one, what marks a true Christian, help, maybe some signs that would separate a true Christian from one that's maybe a Christian in name only, so that all of us, not so that we'll live in fear, not so that we'll worry or wonder about where we stand, but so that we can live in confidence, and so that we can live knowing that we aren't deceived by some sort of counterfeit version that sounds better than what it is. One of the things that John has said is that, um, or one of his focuses rather, as he's been talking about what genuine Christianity is, has been uh, where genuine Christians come from. He's talked about the fact that, and this is something you need to know if if Christianity is unfamiliar to you, one thing that you should know is that any time somebody becomes a Christian, a miracle's happened. That's what the Bible claims, anyway. That's the teaching of the scriptures. And anytime somebody becomes a Christian, it took a miracle for that to happen. Uh, no one, in other words, gets born as a Christian. It's different from other types of identity, other things that factor into who we are. We don't inherit Christianity. No one becomes a Christian just because they got convinced by a really compelling argument. That's never happened, according to John and the rest of the Bible. No one, if it were, then true Christians would be those who are able to follow arguments or able to make them. True Christians would be those who are more rational, maybe, than other people. But that's not what the Bible claims. It doesn't come that way. No one is educated into becoming a Christian. It isn't just a process of learning new facts about the world. No, anytime somebody becomes a Christian, in, in, in the sense that John means that word, a miracle has happened. That's a miracle he describes as being born of God being born into a new life where something that wasn't there is now there. He talks about it as the result of God's spirit, that God's spirit comes into a person and gives them new eyes to see things they didn't see before and new loves, new affections in their heart for things that didn't seem attractive to them before, that something new has been created every time somebody becomes a Christian. And because this is how it happens... Because becoming a genuine Christian is always an act of God, always a miracle done in a person's life. Because that's the way it happens, it always changes people, always. There's always something new that shows up in how they see the world and in how they live in it. And John's been trying to show us through this letter where you can see that miracle showing up in somebody's life. When someone has been born of God, to use his language, it always shows up. Where does it show up, though? What should you look at? How can you tell? 
That's been his focus throughout the letter. It's especially his focus in the section we're in this morning. And we're following up on something that we talked about last week. The section at the end of chapter 4 was all about this too. About what it looks like for somebody to come to know by God's new birth in them. By the Spirit's work in their heart. For them to come to know and be convinced that God loves them. The, the, the connection, the chain of thought that we followed out last week at the end of chapter four was that the spirit comes into somebody. He gives them new birth. They're now not who they were. And what effect does that have? Well, now they see Jesus. They see that the father sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world. That's what John chapter four tells us. That's what the spirit's work is to help you see God through Jesus so that So that the gift of Christ is how you think about God the Father. He loves us. And this is how we know. He gave Jesus to us. So that's the connection John just just made for us at the end of chapter 4. Christians are those who, by God's Spirit, come to see God through the gift of Jesus and know that he loves them. John picks right back up there at the beginning of chapter 5. He's right back at this claim that that you can tell who's been born of God by who Jesus is to them. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then at the end of our section this morning, in verse 5, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So on both ends of the text we're going to look at today, verse 1 and verse 5, we have references to people believing that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, people actually accepting in their life as the way that they see everything else, God's love for them in Christ. What happens in the life of a person who sees God through Jesus, who looks at God and sees someone who loves them because he wouldn't spare his own son for them? What's the difference that shows up? That's what this text is here to help us see. And I wanna just pull out two differences, two things that show up in our lives When we look at God and see him through his gift of Jesus to us, when we look at God as someone we know loves us because he didn't even spare his own son to make us forgiven and holy and clean, when that's who God is to us, two differences show up in our lives. Both of them come out of these first five verses of John chapter, 1 John chapter 5. I want to read this passage before we get into the differences together this morning, and I want to ask you to stand with me as a simple way of honoring God's word as we read it together. This is the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is God's word. You can be seated. What happens when somebody comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world? 
What happens in the life of someone who looks at Jesus and knows that God loves them? What happens in our lives if that's us? Well, here's the first thing. The first thing that happens when we come to see God through Jesus and know that he loves us is that we love what God loves. When we're born of God, we start to love what God loves. This comes out in the first couple of verses that I read for us a minute ago. And, it, and I think there's a couple of things we need to see about this. One thing is that we are going to is that being born of God like this, seeing him as a father who loves us enough to give Jesus for us, well, it's gonna affect who we love, first of all. That comes out here in the first verse. When you've been born of God, you come to love the father, well, then you're gonna love whoever's been born of him. You're gonna love his children. You're gonna love those that he loves. John's been saying basically that same thing over and over and over again. Actually, I don't feel like I need to say much about it this morning because we've said this over and over throughout the series. It's not new if you've been with us for very long. And in case this is your first time to to be with us this morning, the first time to hear any of of this letter that John wrote to his friends, I'm just going to read you a few parts of the letter that we've already covered that say the exact same thing he's saying here. For example, here's chapter 2, verse 10. John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. You've got to love your brother. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message you've heard from one another, that we should love one another. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, talking about Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or chapter 4, just the last chapter, verse 7. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Same point, over and over and over. John loves repetition, and we're going to try to lean into it this morning. The same point that he's made over and over is that people who love God, who are born of him, who are actually in his family, those people love others that are born of him. They love his children. They love those who were precious to him, who were beloved and known by him. So friends, when you experience God's love for you in your life, you're going to love others that he loves. We've talked about the fact that, that we're meant to love everybody. That's something that the Bible teaches consistently all the way through. And John's mentioned it before, even in this letter. But here he's talking especially about Christians, about people that have known and, and been loved by God in Jesus. These people, God's own children, you're going to love them if you know God and have been born of him. That's the simple point. It's just to recap something that we've been saying in this letter all along. The, the, the key mark of somebody who really knows God, of a, a true Christian, is not what you know. It isn't, it isn't the good works that you may have piled up. It's not, it's not some sort of new and meaningful spiritual experience that you might be enjoying. That's not the key mark of someone who knows God. The key mark is, is who you love. See, see the, the New Testament says that even the demons, even these spiritual powers of darkness that live to oppose everything that matters to God, even they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Even they believe that he was sent to be the Savior of the world. They're not surprised by that. They have no trouble affirming it. The difference is that they oppose it. They do everything they can to, to attack those that God loves and is trying to save so you might believe everything a demon believes and have the same posture as a demon. You want, you want to work against what God is doing in the world. But the key mark of someone who, who is born of God is that they want what God wants in the world. 
Their posture is different. It isn't just what they know or what they can affirm with their mouths. It's that they love what he loves and seek what he seeks. So, I mean, just to boil it down, make it even more clear and simple, the, 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 the sign that, that you believe not just facts about Jesus, but actually embrace who Jesus is in your life and in the world as one sent by God to be Savior is in your posture towards other Christians. Your posture toward God shows up in your posture towards his children. You'll start to see other believers as God sees them. And that's going to mean being moved by how precious they are to him. John has talked about this connection between us and and God as as father that, that shows up in our resemblance of him. Earlier in the letter, he's talked about it more in terms of genetics that you know, when you're born biologically from parents, some of those traits of your parents are going to show up in your, your physical body. Here, I think he's talking more about affinity. Something else that we've noticed in, in our family lives, I'm sure. That, that, that sometimes, not always, not absolutely, but often, you start to take on the loves or the interests or the passions of other people that you love in your family. Uh, the, the, the reason that I love to read books a lot and can't fix anything is that my father loves to read books and he can't fix a thing uh that that might be the reason that you're really into cooking or really into gardening or really into sports or the specific sports that you're into or or again like what kind of music you like or what types of books you're apt to read we take on the interests of the affections of the people that matter to us that that love us and shape our lives that's natural that's normal how much more should that be the case when you realize just how precious God's children are to him. I mean, it's one thing to be affected by just the amount of time, maybe, that your father spent watching sports. And he's investing a lot of time in it, and so his passion that shows up in the amount of time ends up bleeding over into your passion, and you watch sports too. But what about when, it, what it, when it's not just time invested in something like that, or not just money invested in it? When it's... When it's the life of Jesus that he's invested in the objects of his love. When you remember that, that everything we're talking about here flows from being convinced by the Spirit that God has loved the world through Jesus. When that's the, when that's the line we're pulling, the thread we're pulling on here. When you see that, that God did not spare his own son but sent Jesus to die so that his children could have life, then how could we overlook his children? Think what it cost him to love them. How could we shrink back from the the costs that it might impose on us to love them well? Or, Or just think about what he's doing for them now. Ephesians 5 talks about Jesus as purifying his bride right now. His life's work is to purify his bride and get her ready for their marriage. And that when he's done, his bride will have no blemish, no spot, no imperfection whatsoever. His bride is his children. Right now, Jesus' agenda in the lives of the Christians that you know is to make them perfect. How could I let their imperfections now keep me from loving and wanting for them what they'll be when he's finished with them? When we love God, His loves bleed over into our loves. 
when we see God through what he's given, the gift of Jesus, then we start to want what he wants. We start to love those that he loves and to seek his work in them. How can we say that we love him and not love what's precious to him? We can't. Not once we've come to see God through the gift of his son, Jesus. That's what John's trying to show us. When we see God through the gift of Jesus, we're going to love those that he loves. There's, there's one other thing, though, here. There's one other thing that I think John is, is, is wanting to point us to about how our love will show up. I think what he wants to show us in verse 2 here is that not only is it going to affect is knowing God's love and embracing it in our lives going to affect who we love. We're going to love who he loves. It's also going to affect how we love them. We're going to try to love them in the way that he has. We're going to try to love them for the same purposes that he loves them. Here's here's where I'm getting this. Let me show you verse 2. I'm going to admit right here up front, this is the hardest verse for me this week in this section. It's the one I've had to spend the most time trying to figure out. Here's what he says. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. He's just said it's important to love the children of God. All those who love God love his children. And this is how you'll know that you love his children. How? When we love God and obey his commandments. We know we love God's children when we love God and obey him. How is that a sign of love for God's children? I didn't get that initially. In fact, it seems backwards. It seems like almost like they got the translation wrong. Because what he's been saying earlier in the letter is that we know we love God when we love his children. You can say that you love God until you're blue in the face, but if you don't actually love the people that he loves, you're just, you're just blowing smoke. This is not true. It's not real. It's just you talking. True love for God shows up in love for what God loves. We've said, he said that. He just said it in chapter 4, verse 20. Here he's flipping it, though. He's saying, you know you love the children of God when you love God. What's the connection here? How is love for God and his commandments a sign that we love God's children? Here's what I think he's saying. I think what he's saying is that, uh, is that we love others best when, we, when what we want for them, what we seek in their lives, is God and his ways. We love other people best when we love God first. And where what we want for them is him. Any other standard of love for them may just end up being self-serving for us or may end up enabling things in them that are just going to hurt them and hold them back. In other words, the best thing we can do for anyone else is make God central to our relationship with them. We love them best, love them for their good, not for our benefit when we love God and love his commands. To be born of God is all of a sudden to have Christ be the center of your agenda for everything that you do. Every relationship you have now belongs to him. It's now focused on him. It's now aimed at him. You are not who you were. To be born of God is to have a new identity that affects everything, especially your relationships with others of God's children who are wanting the same things that you are and aiming for the same style of life in God's love. So, so to love God's children, we need to first love God so that we can give God to one another, so we can constantly be pointing each other to what he said about himself and about what good, flourishing lives look like. So let me just give you a couple examples. This should have a huge effect on your dating lives. 
For those of you who are, who are single or dating, it should, be, it should be clear to you if you're a Christian that uh, you need to be only interested in relationships like, relationships like that with other Christians. Because you're in Christ now. Everything about your life belongs to him and is aimed at him. So what good is it to share something meaningful that might get even more meaningful and deeper and more pervasively effective in your life with somebody who doesn't want what you want, doesn't love what you love, isn't aimed at what you're aimed for? It just doesn't make sense. So we're going to assume that you're dating Christians. If you are, then what John is pointing you to here is that that your relationship in, in your dating relationship is to somebody who's precious to God. You're dating somebody who is, who, who is so precious to God that God gave his only son to make them holy. And that means you relate to them not first and foremost for what you want for them, from them that is, what you might get out of them. But, but you relate to them for what God says is best for them. His agenda in their lives is more important than yours. That means you're going to love them best by loving God and his ways for them. That relationship is one to be leveraged for his glory in their lives and in yours. So it's not fundamentally yours. Here's another example. Sometimes, I mean, I think it's especially a problem here in the South. We talked about this at a, at a, a Bible study in our home earlier this week. We were talking about the effect that uh, the gospel... The, the good news of us being loved well by God and Christ should have on our community. And one of, the, one of the marks that will show up in a community that is grounded on the gospel is that it'll be an honest community. People will shoot straight with one another. They won't try to hide who they are and they won't try to hold back whenever they're talking to one another about what's best or about what they see because the gospel gives them the confidence to, to just not have anything to protect or anything to defend. They're willing to be honest with each other. One of, one of the things we talk about that's really hard especially here in the South, is, is actually being honest with people when what you see is something that's not good. <laughs> when you see something in their lives that you know could be better, you think they'd be better off if they saw it. That it's really hard to go there because in the South we have this blanket that just sort of suffocates that kind of, that kind of direct interaction. And sometimes uh, we, it, we're so hesitant to go there that, that in order to go there, it has to reach this boiling point that's explosive. You know? And then the relationship could never survive this. If we actually are honest with one another, it'll just be awkward and weird and we'll just have to move on and not be friends anymore. That's what you think. So it builds up. But that's not loving people. To, to, to avoid confrontation when something seriously needs to be addressed in somebody else's life. Well, the only reason I'm going to do that is that I love myself more than I love God and more than I love them. See, if, if, if I loved God most, then I'd want his glory. And his glory comes when we recognize his ways and repent of the places where we're not lining up with what he tells us is best. If I love God, I want his glory and I want other people's lives to display his glory and that's gonna guide me. And if I love them, then I'm gonna trust that what God wants for them is best for them, that they're gonna flourish, they're gonna thrive when they embrace what God says is good. So if I really love them, I would tell them what I see. So when I don't tell them what I see in love and grace and mercy, when I, don't, when I hold back instead, what I really am loving most in that moment is me, my convenience, 
my desire to avoid confrontation, my desire to be liked by this person, my desire to have a stress-free life where I don't have to worry about fallout from something I've said. I'm loving myself. But we know that we love the children of God. We know that we really love those children when we love God and obey his commands, when we're willing to seek his glory in their lives before we seek our comfort or our convenience. I think that's what John's trying to say here. There's so many examples we could go to, but hopefully the point is clear. When we have been captured by God's love for us in Jesus, we trust him. And what we want is him to be glorified in our lives and in the lives of every other one of his children. And that's going to mean that we love his children like he does. And it's also going to mean that what we want for his children is the same thing that he wants for them. We're going to, it's going to affect how we love them. I think that's what he says in verse 2. Now, I want to move on. In the last couple of verses here, I think we're talking, John is teasing out a different, uh, a different point for us. So he's trying to help us see, just so, just so we're clear here. Just let me recap here. What he's trying to help us see is what happens in the life of somebody who believes, who really believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent to be the Savior of the world. That's a person who knows God loves them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. So when you get convinced by the power of the Spirit, when you're born again so that you believe God loves you so much he sent Jesus to be your Savior, what changes? Well, the first thing is that you start to love what God loves. You love God's children. You love them in the way that he loves them. There's another change, though, that comes out in the next few verses. When you know God loves you because he's given Jesus for you, then you'll start to trust what God commands. That's verses 3 to 5. You'll start to trust what God commands. You'll love what he loves. That's the first point. The second thing is that you're going to trust what God commands. Let me read verse 3 for you. This, John says, is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Let me stop right there. That might surprise you. Most of us probably don't associate obedience with love. At least not naturally. It's probably not the first place we go. Maybe we could get there, but it's probably not the first place you go. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and guess that the first place you go when you think about obedience is fear. Uh, maybe I've just got that on my mind because this last week was, was tax week, wasn't it? Tax day. And I bet there isn't one person out there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here and say there isn't one of you out there that paid your taxes because you love to see what comes of that investment. <laughs> because it just stirs your heart to hand over that cash to someone you know will use it so well. Right, let, me, let me change it. Let me give you another example. Speed limits. Now, if you obey the speed limit. I'm guessing there is not one of you who obeys the speed limit out of love because you trust that those speed limits are good for you. You might think that those speed limits are good for other people. <laughs> but let's be honest. Studies show that 80 to 90% of drivers think that they're above average drivers. <laughs> so you think that you could handle it if it wasn't 70, but more like 80 or 90. Like if it was really about what's good for you, you could go faster than that speed limit allows you. So if you keep the speed limit, you're just doing it because you're afraid you're going to get caught. Because you know there are cops hiding in bushes and in between, under overpasses, waiting on you to come over the crest of that hill, boom, and shoot you with that radar gun. So 
you only obey that speed limit, I'm guessing, out of fear. And a lot of times that understanding of obedience gets imported into our Christianity too. Anytime we can see, see commands come up in the New Testament, we immediately switch into that fear mode and we think, oh, this is God giving me some sort of requirement I've got to meet if I want to be safe. And John's trying to flip that completely. It's possible to try to obey God out of fear. Maybe that's what you've experienced before when you think about the laws of the Bible or its commands. But John is is talking about a different understanding of obedience altogether. In fact, he has just said in the end of chapter 4, what we looked at last week, he just said perfect love casts out fear. He He said that by this is God's love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, not be afraid of God's judgment. When we get to know that God loves us because we see him through Jesus, who he gave to be our savior, when we see his love, that love casts out fear. We don't have to worry about judgment anymore. We know where we stand with God. That was what we talked about last week. So one who knows God loves them and loves God in return has no fear and only love. Well, why should they obey then? I think he's pulling from that in verse 3, from that theme. This is the love of God. When you come to know God's love for you and it leads to you loving God, this is what it sh- where it shows up in his commandments. Why? Why is that the sign that you really love him? How does love lead to, to obedience rather than, than only fear leading to obedience? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time together unpacking. It's so important, friends. This gets to the heart of what John is interested in in this letter, and it has a huge impact on your life as a Christian if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time here. Why is it that love leads to obedience? Here here are three steps that I think are going to get us there. You need to see this in John's argument. I I want to take these three steps through what John is saying, and then I'm going to come back and tie it all up at the end and try to help press it in and help you see why it's so important. John's taking three steps we need to follow with him here. The first thing he's telling us is that, is that those who love God obey God because they want to. This is the love of God, verse 3 says, that we keep his commandments and, he says, his commandments are not burdensome. Those who love God obey God because they want to. Why do they want to? Why are these commands not burdens but opportunities that they that they lunge into with joy and hope. Why? Step number two. We said that step number one here is that God's children who love God obey because they want to. Why do they obey? Why do they want to? First, or the second step, well, they, they, they obey because they want to because they've overcome the world. That's verse four. Four, in other words, he's about to explain why his commandments are not burdensome to them. His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Well, because, for, because everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. That's why his commandments aren't burdensome. What does that mean? What does it mean to overcome the world? We've already talked about the world once before in this series. Back in chapter 2, John uses this kind of language to describe something that's true of Christians, that they don't love what's in the world anymore. They love God instead. And when we were talking about that passage, we said, "It it isn't that we don't love people who aren't Christians yet. That's not what John means by the world. Sometimes that, that's the meaning of that word, but definitely not here in John. What he talks about in John chapter two, 1 John chapter 2 is, is laid out in that passage. The world, the things that he has in mind when he says the world are what he calls the desires of the eyes 
and the pride of life. We talked about in that passage that those two things refer to a longing for, craving for what you don't have yet. That's the things that you see but don't have, the desire of the eyes, and your pride in what you do have. So you see what you don't have yet as something that you should have, that you want to have, that you're aiming your life at having rather than trusting what God has given you already. And you see what you do have as really ultimately about you. You're the one who's responsible for what you have, for the things that you enjoy, for the accomplishments that you've accomplished, for the skills that you have and possess. So the world is defined by a wanting for what's not possessed yet and a pride over what is possessed. In both of those cases, God's not a factor. I'm the one who decides what's best for me. I'm the one who's responsible for what I have. It's roping him out of your life. That's what, think, so when you think about world in John, you think about a system, a way of thinking and living that's opposed to God's involvement, that prefers a life without him to a life with him. That's what John means. It's a set of promises, another, another narrative, another story about what the good life is, about what your life should be about. And what he's saying here in 1 John 5 is that those who've been born of God, they've overcome the world and its promises. They don't believe that other way of being, that other definition of what's good. They've come to believe God instead. They want to obey him because they've overcome the world's view of what's best. Here's how one writer put it. Trying to explain why overcoming the world would, would lead to God's commands not being burdensome anymore. Like you would want to obey him. So, so they would be burdensome commands if you hadn't overcome the world yet. If the world's promises, a life without God, still whispered in your ear, was drawing you in. Then God's commands would seem burdensome. You would reject them. You wouldn't want them. But, but when you've been born of God, now his commands aren't burdensome anymore. You want what he wants because you've rejected what the world has told you is good and right and true. Here's how one writer describes this connection. He says, it's a burden to be sexually chaste if you believe the message of the world that fornication or adultery really will give you more satisfaction. It's a burden to be honest on your tax returns if you believe the message of the world that more money would bring you more satisfaction. It's a burden to witness to a colleague if you believe the message of the world that Christians are foolish and getting egg on your face is to be avoided at all costs. It's a burden to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. If you believe the message of the world that more satisfaction comes from keeping up the front of strength. But if the world could be overcome, then the commandments of God would not be burdensome. Then they'd be the way of joy and peace and satisfaction. But what can overcome the temptations of the world, he writes? What can unmask the lies of the world? I think verse 4 is meant to give us that answer. This is step number 3 in John, that John is taking. Step number 1 is his children obey him because they want to. They obey out of love. Why do they obey out of love? Step number two is that they've overcome the world. They obey out of love because they have rejected what the world had told them was good and right and true. They know better than to believe those empty promises. They want to obey God. Step number three is how, how did they overcome the world? Verse four tells us by faith. It is their faith that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory 
that has overcome the world. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I know we've taken a lot of steps here. I don't want to assume that you were able to follow all of them, so I'm going to tie it all up again, okay? What John is doing in this section is trying to help us see what difference shows up in our lives when we look at God through Jesus. When we look at the God who made us as the one who sent his son to be the savior of the world. When we look at God through Jesus, what we know is that he loves us. He wouldn't have sent Jesus if we weren't precious to him. And if we know that he loves us, then we know what he tells us is good for us. Our faith in Jesus as the expression of God's love for us convinces us that the world's lies to us are not worth believing. The world will tell us that what God says is not good for us, that he's just trying to limit us, trying to hold us back, that his boundaries are keeping us from what we could be. That's what the world will tell us. But when we see that God didn't spare his own son, when we look at Jesus as the Christ, who's also the son of God, who came to die so that we could be made new, when that's who Jesus is to us, and through Jesus, that's who our Father is to us, then we know that his commands to us will never be bad for us. Then we know, because we see Jesus clearly, then we know that what God wants from us is always good for us. God's commands aren't burdensome, but life-giving when we're convinced that he loves us. And when we know that the commands he gives us come to us from the same source that sent Jesus to us. That's how we know that these commands are serving the same purpose in our lives that Jesus' death served. They're serving our lives by giving us a pathway to joy and peace and wholeness. So obedience comes from love. When we love God, we trust what he commands us. This is not something that's new to John, this kind of, this understanding of obedience. It's all through the Bible, even the Old Testament, which is so full of laws. It always starts with God being the redeemer of his people. I redeemed you. Don't you remember what I did in Egypt? When you were enslaved in Egypt, I came for you. I actually pulled you out of that pit you couldn't climb out of. And I set you in a land just like I told you I would. And, And I was with you the whole way. I led you. I fed you from heaven. I led you every step. I gave you everything I said I would give you. Now, because I delivered you from Egypt, God says back in Exodus, therefore obey these commandments. John is making that same jump here. Because I sent Jesus for you and you know through Jesus that I love you, obey me. Why wouldn't you? So think of obedience. You need to think of obedience to God as a Christian. Not as as something you owe to him like a debt that has to be paid off. That's not the connection John's making. It's not what God, the connection God made when he talk, talked to Israel about the Ten Commandments in Exodus. He doesn't say, look, I redeemed you from Egypt, so now you owe me, and here's how you can pay me back. Ten Commandments, obey them all. That's not what he says. What he's saying is, I redeemed you from Egypt, or here what John is saying is, the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now obey me. He's not saying, obey me because you owe me now. Here's how you pay down that debt. He's saying, if I gave you my own son, why would I command anything from you that's not good for you? 
why would I ever ask you to do something that wouldn't lead to something better in your life than if you disobeyed me? It starts with this reminder that he is to us a redeemer. We can trust him. He wants what's good for us. He knows what's best for us. So keep my commandments. You have no reason to fear. See, when his commandments are burdensome, friends, here's, what, here's, what's, here's what's going on in our hearts. When his commandments to us are burdensome, when we shrink back from them, when they sound like bad news to us rather than good news to us, what we're showing in our hearts is that we don't trust them. We're not sure he's trustworthy. That might be because we're not sure he's wise. Maybe because we're not sure that he's loving. Maybe we aren't sure that he's good. It it could come from different places. But in any case, the posture we're showing, when we shrink back from what he's commanded us, is, is one of suspicion. We suspect that what he is telling us isn't good for us. And anytime we experience that suspicion, anytime it creeps up in us, when we hear a command from him and we shrink back from it, every time that happens, we've lost sight of Jesus. We are not captured in that moment by what God has already shown us of himself as a redeemer from whom we have nothing to fear. I said earlier, let me, let me give you another way of saying the same thing I'm trying to say over and over here. I'm just trying to be as redundant as John is, so y'all bear with me. Here's another way to say the same thing. I said earlier that a lot of times I think we associate obedience with fear. We think we obey because we're afraid. And that can creep into our Christian life. And so we only obey the things that the Bible tells us because we're afraid that God won't love us otherwise. Or we're afraid that he might punish us. Here's another way of saying the same thing John's trying to say here. I, I think what we should get from these verses is that we obey not because we're afraid, but because we're not afraid. That, that actually, it's when we don't obey him that we're acting from fear. It's just that in that case, it's not that we're afraid he'll punish us. It's that we're afraid we'll miss out on something if we obey him. If we embrace the limits he's given us for our lives, it won't be good for us. We're afraid of lives that are less than what they would be if we went our own way instead of embracing his commands. The only way to fully embrace his commands, to trust them, is when you're not afraid that God would ever tell you to do something that wasn't good for you. It's when we're set free from fear that we're set free to obey. We obey for love in that case, with confidence and trust, just like Jesus did. Jesus didn't obey his father because he had to. He obeyed his father. He gave his whole life to pursuing what his father put in front of him because he was so utterly convinced, unshakably confident that his father's ways were good. That's why in John's gospel, in chapter four, Jesus tells his disciples, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It feeds me. I live for it. This is what keeps me going in life. Everything I do is done for his will. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus went into all of his work lightheartedly. I mean, if you know the story of, of Jesus' death, you know that just before he died, he spent, he spent time agonizing in prayer. 
He even prayed to his father that that cup, what he called the cup of his coming death, would pass by him and that he wouldn't have to, to, to pay that cost. Sometimes God's commands to you are going to feel that way. They will seem burdensome at that level in the way that Jesus' cross was something he dreaded. And sometimes obeying God's commands in your life will cause you to take up your own kind of cross, your own sort of death to self, saying no to what feels right, saying yes to opportunities or specific people that you'd rather avoid. Sometimes his commands will cost you in that sense. Make your life difficult and convenient, maybe, maybe even complicated, beyond what you think you can get out of. But when you see God and all his commands through a confidence in Jesus, when you see him through the gift of his son to be the savior of the world, well then, then you can take up that burden with joy just as Jesus did who for the joy set before him did not shrink back from the cross but despised the shame and took it on. You can, like, like Jesus, know that, yeah, this hurts for now, but it's good. When you see God through the gift of his son, then you're gonna start loving what God loves and then you'll start to trust what God commands. I wanna pray that God will do this work in us. Father, uh, we pray that your spirit would keep on the work that you began when we first came to believe and that that spirit's work would make us people who love what you love and trust what you command. We don't want to go through life afraid. Your word says that perfect love, your love doing its work in us, casts out fear. We pray that that would happen, that you would be true to your word and you'd shape us into a confident, loving obedient people by your power for your glory in Jesus name. Amen.